Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Hannah Chiswick. And I'm Laura Checkley. And we are, of course, here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't... Go on, Laura, do your thing. No, I'm not doing my thing this week. Oh. No. Can I just cast your mind back to a couple of weeks ago, right? Do you remember we had Camille Cadore on? Of course. And you said uh, that you thought my catchphrase, you know, who the bloody hell will... We all know mm-hmm. it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it mm-hmm. worked, but only because Camille was delivering it, or that actually the catchphrase works, but it just needed someone else to deliver it. So I'm putting my foot down. I'm not doing it. So there we go. That is the consequences of your actions, Anachisic. So catchphrase is no more, listeners. Right, well, we'll see if that catchphrase is really gone. I'm sure nobody is crying into their tea. As always, we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today. And on that note, who are we celebrating this week, Law? Uh, Do you know what? Actually, we simply are not worthy this week because let me tell you, this incredible lady right here, she is without a doubt the most exciting talent the UK has to offer right now. You know, when we first started this podcast, this week's guest was top of my wish list because her story is beyond inspiring. And to me, she is like the ultimate working class success story. This week's guest is a multi award winning writer. And fun fact for you, listener, listeners, listener. Just, Just the, the one, one your mum. <laughs> <laughs> also, she is also a master improviser. Yeah, and she gigs all over the country with her brilliant improv troupe, The Committee. In 2016, her critically acclaimed short film, Oh Be Joyful, swept the boards at all film festivals, and she has since gone from strength to strength. She came a BFI flair mentee. She, mean, she a, became one. What did I say? She came. Did I? Yeah. All oh, right. She became a BFI <laughs> flair mentee, and... Get this was even named a broadcast hotshot. That's cool, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine just going around thinking, yeah, 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 I'm just a hotshot now. I'm just a hotshot these days. Closest I've ever come to that sort of thing is I was uh, named one of Heat Magazine's lusts of the week. Wow, must have been a slow week. <laughs> This week's guest has written on top-notch shows like Casualty, Stella and Killing Eve, where she also served as consultant producer and most recently penned an episode for Alice Seabright's drama Chloe for BBC One. But it has to be said that what she is probably best known for is creating and writing the critically acclaimed coming-of-age story In My Skin, which is based on her own experiences navigating sexuality and familial mental health. The hit show ran for two series on the BBC, then naturally, because it's so undeniably amazing, it went stateside for US Channel Hulu. Which um, Hannah asked me earlier um, how to say Hulu, because she's never... Well, I've got Hulu, but I've never had to say it out loud, so I had no idea how you said it. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, was it a gargantuan hit, winning best... Best Director, Best Actress and Best Drama Series at the BAFTA Cymru Awards. How was that? Yes, yeah, absolutely right. She's nodding, she's nodding. And it doesn't <laughs> stop there, folks, because this show went on to win an RTS Award for Best Drama Series. And then just a few months ago, playing out like a Hollywood rags to riches story, our girl here went on to win the biggest accolade one could ever hope to win for a TV show. Yes, a bloody BAFTA, baby. Two bloody BAFTAs, in fact. One for Best Drama Series and a BAFTA Craft Award for the woman herself for Best Drama Writer. And something tells me this is only the beginning. Folks, it's Wales's finest hot shot of the year my little fishy in a dishy only she'll understand that reference the genie that is Kaylee Llewellyn Woo! Woo! 
Well done. <laughs> we got there. We got there. A few, like, you know, tongue twisters. Yeah, the listeners won't hear it because obviously be pieced together beautifully. But we stopped <laughs> loads then, didn't we? Sorry about that. Get myself some new teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That was wonderful. Thank you. How do you find hearing it all back? We always ask, I guess, how you find hearing your sort of accolades and everything back. Do you, do you cringe or do you quite like it? I don't cringe, but it almost doesn't feel like it's me. I feel removed yeah. from it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I sort of just thought, oh, that person sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> but it is amazing, though. Obviously, I've known you for such a long time now, but the amount of awards that you've you've won, I mean, obviously, they've been shared out and all of that. I mean... I know you've just moved. You said your house, your new house is empty. Where's your BAFTA though? Is that there? Is that in a oh, corner of the room somewhere? They are here because... Um, oh, sorry, they, of course, plural. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a few down there. Well, we're going to rent out our flat in um, Emily's flat in London on Airbnb. So I was like, I can't believe in all the baths. No. In a <laughs> flat. Could you imagine? <laughs> That's going out on Airbnb. So they've all been shipped down, but it's quite egg because we've got no furniture. <laughs> So when people come to visit, it's just an empty house with a shelf of BAFTAs. I just look like that's all I care about. I don't know. It's like you've bought a a flat just for them. You actually live somewhere else. Yeah. (laughs) This is where the BAFTAs live. This is my Um, BAFTAs flat. Yeah. So I look like I'm just really obsessed with them, which I sort of are obsessed with them, but maybe not that obsessed, you know? It's incredible. Did you think you were going to win? I mean, does anyone ever think they're going to win? I really didn't think I was going to win Best Writer for sure. Because that was, it's a sin and succession yeah. and help. Yeah. And as you know, on In My Skin, we just have no publicity. We have no money behind us. We don't get like advertising and billboards or mm. anything like that. It's just word of mouth. So I just thought we don't stand a chance. It's not that I don't think our show is worthy because I'm so proud of it, but I just thought we're not on the same platform. Mm. When they said my name, like I really did. Me and Neris, our exec producer, we were on a table, just us two, and then a load of men from um, the marketing team of the Olympics because BBC didn't want to even pay for our tickets. Like there was a moment where it was like, Neris got in touch and was like, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but they're saying we've got to buy our own tickets. And they're like nearly £600 a pop. And we couldn't have any, they didn't want to pay for guest tickets, so we couldn't bring the director or we couldn't bring anyone else. It was just us and 10 marketing men. right at the back you know so so there's no chance they don't even want us here there's no, no chance no and then um they said my name and our jaws just hit the floor there was like a 10 second period where we just stared at each other going what the fuck? did you think oh my god i'm gonna have to speak now and i don't know what i'm gonna say because i wasn't like yeah did you prepare a speech your speech was amazing did you see a speech? yeah i did yeah i just sort of on the way there i thought write some bullet points down and then you can forget about it and just enjoy the night. And I just knew that if if I were to be selected, basically I just wanted to highlight Neris um, in the writer's one this is. Because I thought it was so unusual. For, Neris made um, In My Skin, but she also made uh, Alma's Not Normal. Alma's Not Normal being nominated for Best Writer for Sophie Willen and yeah. me being nominated for... So she was Best Comedy Writer, sorry, and I'm Best Drama Writer. Two benefit class women. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's ever happened. No. I, I haven't gone through the history books, but I bet it hasn't happened. And no. there was one common denominator, and it's Neris Evans. So yeah. I just wanted to... And you know Neris well, Laura. She's the yeah. most wonderful woman. Yeah. So yeah, I just, just had that in my mind, to make it about Neris. Yeah. It made it all the sweeter, I've got to say. You know, I'm not... I'm working class, wasn't benefit class, but I've got to say you and then Sophie. It just feels like, I don't know, we turn in a corner. I hope so. It feels it like, like it. a moment anyway. Yeah, yeah definitely it's a start, like a isn't it? Yeah. We start every week asking our guest to take us back to somewhere that reminds them of their working class past. So if you were going to take us somewhere this week, where would you take us? We're going back to Ely, Cardiff. Late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> my roots, probably more, most specific. If you want a very, very specific location, it would be my family's ice cream van. <gasps> wow, they had an ice cream van. Yeah, no way. Yeah, big in the ices game. <laughs> <laughs> Who was running the van? Who was in charge of it? Well, there's actually a few. When I was um, a kid, my dad had an ice cream van, which I imagine was probably some sort of front for dealing drugs. <laughs> But the ice cream van that is fond in my memory is um, my Auntie Linda, her ex-husband, Big Brian, as he's called, because their son is Little Brian. 
Sure. Big Brian had the van. And even though they'd broken up, they were still, you know, friends. And so um, he used to bring the van back to Linda's driveway every night and it would get parked there overnight. And then my grandpa also worked on the van, split the shifts with Big Brian. And then when little Brian was old enough, he took over the van and he's, he's oh still God. got the van now. Yeah. Can you please write a comedy about this or something? Because I just, oh, <laughs> Big Brian and the ice cream van. That must have been so magical as a kid, being able to go inside an ice cream van. Oh, Can you dreaming. Yeah. Yeah, it was heaven. And if I used to stay at my Auntie Linda's house, which was my favourite thing in the world, was if Linda said I could sleep over, just because I loved her so much. The van would come in at like 10 o'clock at night and I knew I, I would be allowed to get on and have an ice cream. No way. That's literally like gold the, there as dream, a kid. The dreamiest part of that was probably in the getting to make it as well. Did you get to make it and do all the... Oh, all all that thing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I remember making things, pretending to do things like that as a kid was such a big thing when I remember... Um, we had this garage before we lost our house. We had like um, this big garage that me and my stepsisters and my brother used to like play in. And my stepdad always had <sighs> dodgy things coming in and out. And once we had these like these pretend like, you know, um, in fish and chip shops when you have the glass front that mm. all the cod sits on. And we had oh, yeah. those and then like That's loads random. of big deep freezers and stuff. Christ. So we used to play fish and chip shops in there all the time. We'd like, <laughs> roll up this brown paper bags and make it like the chicken and the fish. And then we'd get newspaper and it was just like magical. Th- those are the days. My grandparents both volunteered. It's funny because they were in their 70s and like getting close to 80 when they did this. But they volunteered. They didn't want to go to like, they had this... um. So they were like a working class Jewish family from North London and they used to, they had a centre for like older Jewish people in North London, which I think they really wanted to go to, but they couldn't bring themselves to like accept the charity of going there. So instead they ran the shop in there (laughs) and I used to go with them and it was like a little news agent and it was amazing and I used to get to serve behind the counter like these old girls. Oh my God. And little like bags of sweets I used to weigh out and give to these old people. It was like literally my favourite thing to do and they both worked in there even when my grandma couldn't stand she'd sit in her like wheelchair in that shop yeah because she was like adamant that she wasn't gonna go as a like the pride yeah yeah it was just a pride thing she was like no I'm gonna she'd always run a little shop and she's like I'm gonna run that shop and she did it well into her 80s bless her yeah wow yeah did you get hungry on the power when the oldies were queuing up I am telling you now I was about nine and I was all that's why she's a director (laughs) (laughs) it was brilliant I loved it <laughs> so um where was home for you uh, and tell us a bit about your uh, where you grew up so I grew up in Whitchurch in Cardiff was which was sort of like slightly the better sides of the tracks all my mum's family lived in Ely and then when she was pregnant with me my she already had my two older brothers and when she got pregnant with me my dad was in prison they were living in Ely as well and I think my mum got it in her head that she was just like I want to get a better life than what the way things are in Ely. And so she she took me on the bus when I was a when I was born. She took me on the bus, I think like every day for two or three weeks, she went to the council and she queued up trying to get a house in Whitchurch. And she managed to get one. Yeah. And so she moved and like, you know, Whitchurch isn't um it's not Kensington. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just it was still a council house, but there was slightly better schools and it was just less crime and stuff. And so I was raised in this slightly nicer part of town. Um, but then my dad got out of prison and so he was in the house as well, sadly. Yeah. But um, whenever we went back to Ely, that's when it felt like this is home. Because every street corner in Ely, or every road in Ely has got at least three members of my family living on. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. And the and obviously the ice cream van is there, so everyone knows them. And like all my cousins would just be out in the street and I'd just be like, oh yeah, this is it. This is living, man. Although, obviously, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I got to go to a slightly nicer comprehensive school and stuff. But, yeah, that felt like home. And how was um, how was school for you? I take it you were pretty academic-ish. I think, like, I suppose maybe a, a fairly natural aptitude, but also a complete gobshite. Yeah. Right. I liked being there, though. I, I had a lot of fun in school and you feel like in my skin depicts that quite that that is true how to how you were at school bit of a gobshite but then you know your teacher could see your teachers could see your potential and yeah that's a good point actually I'm sat here being like how can I describe the kind of people I were? oh watching my skin <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's it she's she's a gobshite um and she's mouthy but she's maybe not like rude just cheeky 
Um, If if I liked a subject, I could do well at it. Or if I liked a teacher, which maybe happened like three times where I maybe fancied a couple of my teachers. Sure, that always helps. Yeah, Yeah. sure. And then suddenly I was in the front and all my friends, I was like, shut up, we don't want to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'd suddenly be like A-star pupil. But then if that teacher left or I changed class, I couldn't give a fuck again. And did you have like an aptitude for English? Like, did you start writing at school and go, oh, I'm good at this? Or was that a later? I definitely enjoyed English and like, you know, got good grades in it when it came to exam time. But I also, I couldn't read or write my own name until I was like eight. No way. Yeah. I think just because no one at home was sitting down with me and being like, read a book. Yeah. And I remember a point where a teacher called my mum and was like, she needs to learn to read. And so then my mum, not that my mum was... Um, yeah, she's like, I thought that's what school was for. Yeah, I thought you were doing right? it. Yeah. yeah. She was working two jobs as well. So she was just like, she was barely home because yeah. she was just slogging. And so, But I remember the moment when she was like, right, sit down. We've got to go through this. And I finally learned how to spell my name. It's not an easy name, to be fair. No, it's true. not. <laughs> It's got a silent G and a silent H. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so let's say I wasn't Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> a much but easier I, name to spell. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, I got there in the end and I did enjoy it, but I don't think, right, I didn't see myself being a writer at all. And do you think your mum particularly had it? Because it sounds quite, in, in her own way, that's quite aspirational, isn't it? To move, get on the bus every day, to go to the council, to look for a better place for you to live. Do you think she had aspirations for you in terms of school? Like, did she want you to work hard or was she not really engaged with that so much? She definitely wanted a better life for me and my sister. But I don't know if it sounds offensive to say the bar was low for her. Hmm in terms of like what she was coming from yeah of course us having a better life was like I remember her saying to my dad you will never hit these girls if you hit these girls like that that will be the thing that makes me leave and he did some terrible things but he didn't ever hit me and my sister I think he knew she met that was her one line in Mm. the sand because of the abuse she'd come from she was willing to take the abuse not not happy to take it but I Mm. think she thought it was all she could aspire to it was all she was ever going to get yeah but the line in the sand for her was you don't touch my girls um so she wanted that and like she wanted I think she wanted me to like have my own house one day yeah 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 she I think she she wanted me to do well and she was proud if I did do well but there was absolutely no pressure to do well but you know what though you don't want to romanticize that idea too too much because obviously like you were talking there Kayla about like what struggle your mum came from and stuff but there's also the other end of that spectrum isn't there of like absolute pressure to do well it can work two ways I think as well like you see people who go to like I was doing these auditions in a private school mm. not for the private school we were just doing auditions in this school mm. and I was looking around this school it was a primary school right and they were having their school journey and the school journey was to Malaysia we went oh. to Hever Castle in South London four years in a fucking row. Yeah. Let me twice. tell you, I could t- give you a tour of Hever Castle. <laughs> we I've been there so we bloody rock, much. We went rock climbing in Wales. And I was saying to somebody who worked there, I was like, oh my God, my son Isaac. I was like, God, can you imagine? I could never do this. But imagine if like, I could send Isaac here and he said he'd hate it. Mm. He said it's it's like a boot camp, constantly like a boot camp. And unless you're a maths genius and that's your thing. So it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's sort of like broadening your horizons but at the same time there can be so much expectation I think if you're pushed really hard along the academic route as well it's probably somewhere in the middle really isn't it Mm. I'm quite glad in hindsight like there was definitely times when I was younger when I sort of wished that she could be more present in terms of like you know sometimes as a kid if you don't have any discipline you almost crave yeah yes a bit of discipline um but looking back like she just supported me. She couldn't, um, she didn't necessarily emotionally have time to be constantly kind of checking in on me and stuff. Cause it's, it's almost like I've got two jobs. She's got bipolar. Like I'm struggling to keep four kids afloat. Your dad's a waster. Like, you know, I, I need you to step up a bit kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but there was never me coming out as gay, me choosing to move to London and do drama. And then me deciding to be a writer. Like it was always just whatever you want, babe. Unwavering kind of, if it makes you happy, do it. This is a, a sort of strange question, but I've been thinking loads recently about like health privilege, like how privilege and money affects loads of different situations. And I was just reading recently about how money can be so helpful in all sorts of areas and mental health and different things being one of them. Do you think 
your mum's bipolar would have been dealt with differently had she come from more money or a more privileged background? Yeah, I do for sure. And I've definitely sort of, when you have your daydreams, think about if I was the age I am now with the financial security I have now, when my mum first got sick, Mm -hmm. things would go very differently. Yeah. But that's all shoulda, woulda, coulda, of course, because I don't think many people develop bipolar when they're mid-60s. Yeah, of course. Um, So, you know, pie in the sky thinking. But being a child and not knowing anything about talk therapy and the kind of more holistic types of care that should be offered to someone instead of just medication, Mm. because it is just dose them so that they're so sedated they don't have a breakdown. Yeah. And that's no way to live. And also, I shouldn't speak out of turn. That's not everyone with bipolar. That's of course each case can be different depending on where you're from and what doctors you have and your particular diagnosis and whatever. But for, I think for my mum, it goes back even further. There's this amazing psychologist called Mary Boyle who talks about how she thinks we should completely, as a society, eradicate the term mental illness entirely and instead call them trauma responses because in every instance it is the body responding to trauma whether that be bipolar or alcoholism drug addiction reckless behavior gambling all the different ways that people might suffer they come from a trauma and when we start referring to them as trauma responses it instills empathy when you're thinking of that person instead of just going oh they were born mad bad luck yeah they weren't something happened and in my mum's instance something quite severe happened to her when she was a kid that I know won't have ever been resolved for her because therapy wasn't an option. Obviously, you know, I I know your story very well, but uh, for those that didn't, obviously you're at school and all of that's going on. How did you, I mean, I know you can see in my skin that a teacher turns around to you and says, oh, you know, keep writing. She hands you that mm. book and she says, just keep writing. Did that happen, by the way? Was that a real thing? I didn't get the book and the keep writing, no, because but I did have teachers who really took an interest in me. But I was into drama when I was at school, so it was like, I'm going to go and be an actress. Um, Is that what you first felt then when you are at school? I, I want to be an actor. So the writing thing wasn't even in your psyche. It was like, I want to be an actor. Yeah, it was all about acting. But in hindsight, it's only because I didn't know writing was a job. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I just I think, didn't even yeah. know it existed. And then when I... Did move to London. I went to uni, first of all, because I needed to get bursaries so that I could afford to even go. Yeah. And I knew I could get bursaries. So I got bursaries to go to uni, hated it, but worked two jobs the whole time I was at uni. So I was saving my bursaries and my grants from uni, working the two jobs and saving from that. So by the end of the three years, I'd saved enough to go to drama school. You did not. That's incredible. Yeah. I know so much debt now. Um <laughs> Still paying it off, but I'm, I just, yep. just just had an email from my accountant now letting me know how much that student loan <laughs> I've got to pay off. Um, yeah, so did that, went to do acting, and actually loved doing the course, and I think I'm a better writer mm-hmm. having trained as an actress. And as a writer, I love, I love collaborating with mm. um, performers. So I'm really glad I did it, but very quickly became a little bit disillusioned. Not disillusioned, but I just was like, this isn't the thing that's scratching the itch. And then I realised it was writing. And it had always been writing. It's just the old, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even, I mean, I suppose when you're a kid, aren't you, watching the telly, so you know it's a thing, don't you know acting is a thing. But there's still an element of how do I get there? How did you know to go to drama school? Did someone at uni mention it? Or was it just because you're in London and you're meeting a different crowd? Did you know that a drama school existed before you left for London? Yeah, I knew that because I was into drama at school and, and sort of the the amalgamation of teachers, one of which you play excellently and in my skin. <laughs> and in my skin, it's an English teacher and a PE teacher. In reality, they were, they were mostly drama teachers who just took an interest in me and I did the plays. I, I used to audition and I very rarely got cast in them, but I'd be like, I'd audition to play Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, great. Because they made a female. And they'd be like, you didn't get Mercutio, but you did get props manager. <laughs> Which, you know. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. Um, and I just love, I loved the community of that. And I realise now when I'm on set, when we're filming, it's the same buzz. Yeah. It's all the gang together and we're making something and it's yeah. exciting. Um, and they took us, we went to the West End and we saw Les Mis and, 
Um, so I knew about drama school from them, but I think I just knew one, I couldn't afford to go. It just was not feasible for me at all. But also I maybe thought I just wasn't, I just didn't know where to start. I, I remember Matthew Barry, who um, is another TV writer, um, one of my best friends. We were head boy and head girl together of Witchwood High School. We both did acting and then segued into writing. Um, I remember Matt saying to me that he was going to um, audition for National Youth Theatre. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll audition then. I want to do that. And he was like, yeah, you've got to do like a minute Shakespeare and a minute modern or whatever. And he'd been going to see this drama teacher who was helping him. Matt wasn't wealthy either, but he just maybe like a bit more worldly wise and had parents taking more of an interest. So when he said just do a minute Shakespeare, I didn't know that that needed to be like one speech. <laughs> so I went... I went to the library and just picked up any old Shakespeare book. And I just went through and pulled one line from there, two lines oh, from there. That. I just pieced together random sections from the whole book until it equaled just one like minute. delivering loads of one lines. Yeah. Did you piece it together as a story? Or is it just like delivering a line? Delivering another line? Because I didn't know what I was saying. So I didn't know what the words meant. So I, looking back now, I cringe for that very obese covered in acne 14 year old kid that I was with my hair gel back into like wet look gel with a frizzy pony <laughs> did you have two bits hanging down at the front <laughs> two, two shards at the front <laughs> just delivering myself and I, I sort of remember thinking that the person was looking at me weird but they didn't say like they didn't say what have you done no, <laughs> just, no. I don't even think it was the same character I love that I don't even think I use dialogue from the same character it's possibly like it's hard because one of those things that could have been absolute genius. You'd have probably loved it. It's the sort oh, of thing yeah. Hannah be like, "I love this kid. Look what this kid's done." I love it when people come in when kids do that, and you go like, "Oh, they're doing King Lear, and they've got no idea what they're doing, but they just sort of love it." And I find it really exciting when that happens. I just love it. Oh, if only you'd been the one in the room. Matt got in, and I didn't even get a recall. And I remember really thinking I was going to get a recall. Yeah. I thought, God, can't wait for my summer. Oh, don't. <laughs> I'm definitely going. And then Matt swanned off for his, like, whatever it was, three weeks in London. And I was just like, oh, fuck. So, I mean, looking at, like, all the brilliant things that are happening to you, rightly so at the moment, I think people often get this, uh, we talk about this a lot, don't we, but people get this impression that, oh, look at her coming overnight from nowhere. But, of course, that's <laughs> never, ever the case. How did you start writing? What was your first, like, actual writing gig? What, what happened after you put yourself through drama school? So, 2012... With Matt again, um, Matt had just done this BBC Writers Academy, which is where they like they used to take on eight people per year and they'd kind of pay you almost a salary to be trained how to write their core shows, Casualty, Holby, EastEnders. Matt had just done that. I wasn't writing at all yet. I was at a phase in my life where I was like, I've got things I say I'm going to do, but I don't do them. I just go and get drunk. Mm. And I just had had enough of being that. I was just like, what am I? Like, I, I thought I was going to be something. I thought I was going to break the mould. And actually, all I'm doing is selling theatre tickets on Leicester Square. And I'm a, I'm a waster. And I'd, I'd, done it, I'd done it for a few years. And I got to a point where I just took a long, hard look at myself and thought, get it together, mate. Are you something or are you not? <laughs> and um, I saw this, this competition being advertised, BAFTA Rockcliffe new writing competition sat in my booth on Piccadilly Circus selling Phantom of the Opera tickets nice. <laughs> and, and it was five days to the deadline Whoa. and I've always needed a strong deadline yeah like don't give me three months give me three hours you know yeah tell yeah. me about it yeah so I had this vague idea that had been beating around in my head about my grandmother it's the old cliche I literally wrote it down on the back of an envelope came up with some characters that I thought could be in it and then I went around Matt's house that night and said look I've got this idea. I don't really know how to write though, and you do. You're learning. We've got five days. Should we just do it together? And he was like, yes, let's go. So we did it in the evenings, both working in the day, and then every evening for five days, we got this thing together, entered it, and we bloody won. Amazing. Yeah. What an incredible and start. Then, funnily enough, because all these things come back around, Shane Allen, the TV commissioner, was at Channel 4 at the time, and he was on the judging panel. And he pulled us to one side and he was like, look, mum's the word sort of thing, but I've just been hired to go and be head of comedy at BBC. I'm going to be moving there. And I, I think it was about old women and it was a bit like warm and cuddly. 
And I think in Shane's kind of like rock and roll and he was going to the BBC, he thought this sort of warm, fuzzy old women's shit, that's a bit BBC. <laughs> so he um, he commissioned the first two scripts from us. And the show never got made, but overnight I was like, I'm being paid to, to do write. this. And then it was ultimately Shane who picked up in my skin. So, you know, like when that happened, did that feel like you'd arrived then? Yes. Yeah. I remember I was back in an, another one of the booths, a different booth on Shaftesbury Avenue. Um, She's been in all the booths. Been in all the booths. And I just signed with an agent because I had this like thing on the horizon. And she emailed me when I was selling tickets saying what I was going to get paid. She's like, the contract's been worked out and you're going to get paid £8,000. And I nearly fell to the floor. (laughs) And my manager came in, I think, to be like, do some work sort of thing. I can see on the camera she's not doing any work. And I remember very grandly saying to him, Michael, my life just changed. (laughs) (laughs) and was michael interested in hearing that or he was you know he sort of was like oh that's good sell fucking tickets yeah Um, yeah do your job (laughs) yeah but i very quickly like then handed in my notice and i sent a grand email at all to everyone in the theater company at all brilliant i'm going to pursue this writing thing bye bye see you never eat my dust motherfuckers (laughs) went off with my eight grand in my pocket Six months later, show's not been picked up. Literally all the money's been given to G.A.Y. late on Jaeger Bombs. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I got back in touch with Michael and said, can I have my job back? He's like, no, you're lazy, go away. <laughs> yeah, shame, shame, know your name. I went back with my tail between my legs. That's really bold because I, I talk about this all the time. I've, I've been a real wuss where, you know, sort of jumping off the nine to five bus um you know as you know I've, I've worked teaching for many years and I've only just been just an actress for the last three years maybe two years and I could have done it sooner because I was like you know I, I was in a, a better financial way but I have always always and it's probably it might be my upbringing um because you know we my family were always like very working class but we were always okay and then we lost everything and I think ever since that being a kid and losing everything, being homeless. The fear of it, yeah. I think the fear of it has stayed with me. Mm. I just admire that you were like, I've got eight grand, fuck it, I'm doing it. It's like that nothing in your brain went, do you know what? I'll just keep this job just in case. Yeah. Just in case. But I do think it's the right attitude to have. I do. But you've had that from a kid, right? You're just like, yeah, I'm just going to, like when you went for MYMT like, or MYT, like, yeah, I'm going to yeah. get this. This is happening for me. <laughs> yeah. Delusions of grandeur are just delusional. Um <laughs> It's helped in some ways. But I, I think that being poor when you're young and losing stuff can either send you one of two ways, which is to be really sort of risk adverse mm. and always want to be covering all your bases and, you know, just making sure all, all the all the pennies add up. Or I think what I lean a little bit more towards is, well, I had nothing. Yeah. I've come from nothing. And if I wind up in nothing again, oh, well, I've been there before. Yeah. I think think that's, you know, those people who on quiz shows when they can gamble it all. I've never had anything and I know I'm a gamble it all person. Oh, I go, take the 25 grand, take the cheese. I I think you've gone all the way there. You came in with fuck all, go for the 100,000. Like, what's the point of taking five grand? I know, I know. I wish I I was that person. I would definitely. I I mean, listen, I should be the other person, but I'm not. I know that I would absolutely go, oh, fuck it. I haven't got anything. Don't get me wrong, I can be frivolous. You know, I love a spend up. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm not, you know, but I, yeah, I just admire it. I admire it that you just were like, yeah, fuck it. I've got the eight grand. I'm okay, kiddo. Take the leap. And I, I always had my mum and my nan and my auntie Linda, three amazing like women in my life. But if I said I was worried about something, or, like if I was nervous about something at school or I wanted to do well and I didn't know if I could, and my mum just used to say, you can do it. If anyone can do it, you can. It's amazing. And I just believed it because she said it. So I just would think, well, if anyone can do it, it might as well. I think it could probably be me. I'll just have a go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you obviously, the commission uh, didn't work out when you got paid. Fantastic. What happened next? So then that was that. Because I'd signed with an agent, the ball just starts rolling then, you know, and then you realise it's a very, very big mountain and a very small ball (laughs) (laughs) that's got to slowly um, build pace. But me and Matt pitched a couple of other ideas to different production companies that we, BAFTA, through that competition, BAFTA set you up on, like, generals with different companies with no view that you're going to get work. It's just to, like get your foot in the door and meet them. Yeah, it's great. So we did those and then we were really like, when we're in, in the room, let's have two or three new ideas to pitch them. So we got a couple of options to write scripts for people, pay very little, but, you know, it's just building your portfolio, isn't it? And then I suppose the big kind of like benchmarks along the way, the first one pro- would probably be Oh, Be Joyful, doing the short film that you were in again, Law. I'd done through Matt, we'd written Stella together. Matthew had got the Stella job, effectively, for Sky One, and he'd gone, can my mate write it as well? And it was always very much the, like, people wanted Matt. And he's a phenomenal writer, I should say, but it was always, the feeling was always like, Matt brings his mate. Yeah, you felt like you were being handed, yeah, a favour. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the contracts would even be like, because they were dual contracts, there would be clauses in them being like, but this is Matthew Barry's rate. When yes. Kaylee works on her own, Kaylee doesn't get this rate kind of thing. And so I, in 2015, got to the point where I was like, I've got to do something by myself before anyone's going to acknowledge that I can write as well. Mm. And so me and Matt, again, taking a leap and a prayer, we decided to um, go to LA off our own steam, like pay, pay for, for it. I was still at the box office now because I'd gone back, tail between legs, <laughs> but saved up the money. We go to LA and, and we asked our agent to set up some meetings for us. And so we were just like going into these meetings on the like Warner Brothers lot or the Disney lot. That's amazing. Because yeah. there, there is a sort of thing in America where if you're a new writer, it doesn't really matter who you are. Everyone will take that first meet because they don't want to miss the next big thing. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that we're two little scabs from Wales, they didn't really know. They just were like, yeah, we'll take the meet. And so we were doing that, we were going around, we were pitching ideas. Again, nothing came of it, except I just had a lovely time. But on that trip, I, I got introduced to this really wealthy, older gay guy from like Sweden by a friend of a friend. And we went for dinner. And I had that little thing of like, just ask. So I said, um, I've written this short film and I'd love to shoot it. I think we'd need about 10 grand. I don't know if you're like ever interested in investing and things like that. And he went, oh, go on, tell me the idea. So I told him the idea and then... Yeah, okay, I'll I'll give you some money for that. Isn't it funny how easy it can be? It's like, it takes so long to get up the courage, I think, particularly if you come perhaps from a working class background, to realise that people do just ask. Yeah. 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 A lot of people are just out there asking. Because you'd, you'd, you know, I certainly would have been brought up to, don't you dare ask Don't ask, especially for money. You can't ask for money. money, Oh my God, no way. Yeah. People do. That's incredible. Yeah. And so then we we got to make that and... It was like invaluable experience for me to be on a set and 
and be working with actors and just, you know, be involved in the process from start to finish. I just loved every second of it. It did well at festivals. And then amazing producer called Roxanne Harvey, who was at Casualty at the time, saw my short and was like, come and I think you could do an episode of Casualty. Come and write one. And so I got my first broadcast credit by myself, which is important in this game, yeah, you know. Yeah. And just kept going from there then. When you were going into, obviously you had Matt with you, so it probably made it a little easier. But when you're going into all these, I suppose certainly over here as well, when you're going into the BAFTA meetings, pitching ideas and whatever, did you ever get a sense of imposter syndrome? I get the feeling you don't have that. I get the feeling like that. Fuck it, no, I deserve to be here. No, the opposite. I severely get it and I still get it now. Like, if anything, the last few months I've been like really struggling with mental block it's not quite writer's block because I've got the ideas and I, I know how to write the script and I know what the story should be. The mental block is the voice going, you're going to let everyone down. Mm. You can't do it. People believe in you. That comes from just having a BAFTA award winning show. Like, yeah, it's a huge amount of pressure. Yeah. Like I keep writing these lists of like, tell yourself in black and white, write down what you're scared of and write down the reality of why it's fine. And like, the why it's fine category is you have you have won BAFTAs. Yeah. Demonstrably, you know how to write. And <laughs> yeah. then the flip side is they're going to realise that yeah, it was a fluke and I'm yeah. actually not that good and I'm going to be uncovered and I'm going to be reverted to my old life. You know, people are going to be like, there's a mistake, send her back. But it's also not true. Your path was made from the moment you won the Rockcliffe. Like, you are brilliant at what you do and you've been awarded all the way along the way to the BAFTA. So it's, I think I, it is important, though, isn't it? I think it's really good for listeners to hear, particularly like maybe not necessarily younger in years, but you know, people at different stages of their career. This idea, I always thought that like we'd arrive to this place of like real security and confidence in ourselves, and and people say, oh, like you're really confident, but I, on a personal note, like I feel like I waver up and down within the course of a 24-hour period yeah. between thinking I deserve it all and I'm excellent director mm. and it's just, you know, absolutely what I am meant to do and that I am the worst person and any minute everyone's going to find out and I will never step into a rehearsal room again. And and it, and it really is like blowing around like a leaf in the wind. And I, the only thing I say to younger directors and stuff is like, I'm just used to feeling it. Yeah. I haven't mm. stopped feeling it but I know that it comes and goes and peaks and troughs. And that's so true. That's the only thing I've learned that I've lived through it many times, um, but it's no better than it was. And that's universal, isn't it? It's regardless of class. I think you can feel that. But like, yeah, just going back to like you walking into the pitch meetings, particularly here, I'm more interested to hear about because I think in America, they're like, yeah, great. Come in. Let's meet you. Um, Whereas I think here it can be a little snooty, a bit more closed shop. Did you feel like... I don't know, little Kaylee from Wales that wasn't, you know, no one's going to be interested in me. Did Was was that there? Mm. Yeah. How was the imposter syndrome then walking into these big meetings with, you know, these probably middle class men? You definitely get a bit of extra bravado and confidence from being there with your mate. Yeah. I think it would have gone down very differently if I was there by myself. But me and Matt, having been best friends since we were 11, you know, we've got this like easy rapport I suppose and that um really helped in those meetings and I remember going in and like you know you see the production companies all usually have their awards cabinet with their awards in and sort of we'd be trying to sneak photos on our phone and just be like this is nuts but I think to a degree like I wouldn't have even been in the room in the first place I wouldn't have even entered that BAFTA competition if somewhere deep down inside Mm. I didn't have this kernel at the core of me going you can do it you should do it you can do it you will do it and I've had that since I was a kid that's not new I don't know where it comes from I was I just born with it and other people didn't get it but this like it's almost like the layers of the earth and the magma at the center is this belief that if you want it bad enough and you're willing to work hard enough you'll get there that has always been there and then the the layers on top are the like sure the imposter syndrome and the worries and the anxiety and the, oh God, did I embarrass myself? But I can always fall back on that core. And so that's why I'm there in the first place, you know? Otherwise, I wouldn't have even bothered trying. I wouldn't have even bothered. But once you're in the room, what I will say about those early meetings is the idea, the show we were writing was called Grey. And it was my idea and it was based on my grandmother. And Matthew was a completely equal writer and I'd taken the idea to him and we'd grown it together. 
But in the rooms, you could really feel the litmus test of the producers that would only talk to Matt. Wow. Yeah, sure. They go, where'd you get, where'd you get this idea from, Matt? What made you think about this idea, Matt? And Matt's great. He'd always divert and be like, it's Kaylee's, it's Kaylee's, it's Kaylee's. But you just feel that I'm, they don't, they didn't, it's, the industry's changing so quickly now in, yeah. since this was 10 years ago. But I definitely just felt like the cleaner had been allowed in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I always feel like I'm the cleaner that's been let in the yeah. room. Yeah. Kelly, I wanted to ask you a question about, so obviously, like, in my skin, it's so amazing. It's so amazing for so many reasons. But there's so many brilliant things about it, not just the writing, but that it's written by, you know, a female team. It's so amazing that you have had that success and that it sort of speaks, like you say, of a benefit class. And I don't think really we've ever seen a female narrative. I was trying to think of, like, a female narrative that has actually come from that background. And what I wanted to ask you, though, is what was it like? I mean, it's such a truthful story of your life. What was it like actually having that air and people watch it? And how did that feel in terms of it being your own story? So affirming. And like, <laughs> I think talking about like the core of ourselves, the core of me, there has been this unwavering belief that I can achieve what I want to achieve. But another core of me since I was very little is you are dirty shameful bit wrong you shouldn't be here if people knew what was really going on they wouldn't they they wouldn't want you around just just always feeling like I've got to wear so many costumes to just Mm. be accepted and for people to want me in the same room as them and so that you know you you grow up and you learn better and you go to therapy and you you try and resolve those things but it's still just little bubble you know and being gay um and feeling like that was something I needed to hide all those things and so when the show came out and it was just sort of embraced Mm -hmm. but not only embraced I think the most magical thing for me was the amount of viewers who personally got in touch there they're like find me on social media or contact my agent and just go me too I feel this I had this I lived this and just sort of yeah it was it was almost like being washed clean Mm, it felt like I was I'm I'm one of the, I am one of you. I'm not, I'm not other. Uh, So that was wonderful. And then, but also the second series, like the whole thing has been so emotional, making it has been so emotional and so wonderful. And I'm so grateful. It's just such a joyful set, isn't it, Law? Yeah, yeah. It's just felt magic from start to finish. But the second series, I just like could not stop crying. And I'm not even a big crier. So I'm not a big crier. And then our director, Molly Manners, was like, you could have fooled me because she constantly crying. <laughs> it was just, it felt like something was being exercised and a dam was being smashed out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I do think there was something about the second series because it ends on a happy note, which is which is real, you know, me going off to London and my mum wishing me well. To end there for me, I think, has really unearthed something quite deep because now looking back, I know that story only ends well for me. Mm-hmm it doesn't end well for her and at that point in my life there was hope yeah and now I know she saved me yeah but not her yeah. gonna cry again I'm not crying no but you know what I you feel that so oh heavily god, god you're, you're so clever you're so I just watch in my skin it's such a masterclass. but when she's waving you off on that coach I can't even you just know that she's probably not going to be all right mm. but she has to let you go mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, God, I'm going to go. <laughs> I think it's also thinking about, can you, it must be so wonderful to thin a gift that you've given to, like, imagine if you'd watched that when you were going through what you were going through as a child yeah. and how less alone you would have felt, yes, as a gay woman, but also, you know, living in a family with so much kind of, with so much mental health to deal with. And that is a family thing to deal with, isn't it? It affects everybody in the family, obviously primarily your mum but of course as a child and there must just be so many like you know the rocks they've written to you young people out there who have felt less alone and less like things can't get better because they've watched your story and that must I don't know I just think that's such an incredible thing that you've done there it's a really amazing way to have used the your you know your gift it's amazing oh god thank you when we were on set you know like Kaylee talking about the joy and the, the love for it. I think, honestly, everyone would have stepped onto that second series for free because he just knew how important the story was. Also, we were having an amazing time. 
God, you know, I'd chop off my right arm to do it all again and work with Kayleigh again. But particularly the, like, we just, everyone, there was just a huge sense. It was just... Doing something important. Oh, it was full of heart. And that mm. we were all doing something important, even if I was just there for the lols. I knew that that was also too Lols important. are important <laughs> as well. Important too, yeah. Well, they were incredibly important in this show because it would always yeah. be like, when things get too heavy, it would be like, bring Mrs Blocker in. <laughs> And then it was a struggle in series two because you were filming King Gary at the same time and we couldn't oh, no. get you as much as we needed Mrs. Blocker to balance the scales. So it was like <laughs> I was having to get really clever with how I, I used I was furious you. about that, but it was, um, it was brilliantly done. Do you know what? Like, and what I love about that is that when I was a kid, you know, and struggling with my sexuality and all the problems I had growing up, not half as terrible as yours, not it's a competition, but like... I always wanted to make people laugh and it felt that role just felt so right to go that's what I've, that's what I'm here for to make people laugh mm, and it's all yeah. a bit shit and all a bit yeah. down and that's what I've always wanted to do because I never wanted anyone to feel so shit as I did or like you know mm-hmm. as miserable as I did so you know that's why I do comedy but doing blocker in that for that story just felt so like yeah I knew it was worth it, I knew it was she was born for this she was born for this baby <laughs> did your so what was your mum's reaction to everything that's happened within your skin I mean obviously it's like very personal to her and about her mm-hmm. did you talk to her before you wrote it as you were writing it did she know it was happening did you watch it together this is actually one of those mad things that I think if I pitched it someone would go Nah, that sounds make-believe. But this this is what really happened, is that I came up with the idea of In My Skin sort of on a whim when a different job fell through. And I was really disappointed. It was this thing in LA that looked like it was going to go. And they'd sent over the contracts of what the money would be. You know, the American money is like... Yeah, ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> More than yes. your eight grand down the ticket office. <laughs> let's just <laughs> say, yeah, yeah. Let's go yeah. with that. <laughs> that's just your per diem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or I now know that's what you get if your show gets nominated for an Emmy or a Golden Globe in America. You get like... Nice. A hundred K just for getting a nomination or something. Do you? Yeah, not because I've achieved it. I've just... Um, no, you don't. You get money for being nominated. You get money to be nominated and you get even more money if you win. Jesus wow. Christ on a bike. Yeah. We can only aspire to the day. Um, <laughs> it's, I always say it's so crass talking about money, but then I'm like, do you know what? When you've been poor, you're just like, this is how you earn money, bitch. Yeah. You need we money. We talk about money on this First podcast loads and loads and loads and loads because I think it's another thing that holds working class people back because they don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed to ask mm. about it. And I think it's so important. I think it's important to have aspiration to earn money and also not feel bad for asking for money know your worth and not feeling like stuck going oh I better not talk about that we talk about it loads you called me up didn't you and you're not gonna believe this (laughs) first time I got a big part of called Hannah guess how much I'm getting paid (laughs) I said lend us a tenner yeah (laughs) with with Emily I'll always be like guess what um we're going on holiday babe things are changing Anyway, all that to say, so this thing had just fallen through and I thought I was going to get paid loads and then it got snatched away in one email. It's not happening. Bye. I was like, fuck's sake. Thank God for that. (laughs) Yeah, and thank God it all works out for a reason in the end. But so in that sort of disappointed place, I was like, there is this one story that I could try and sell. And so I wrote this like really honest one pager. It wasn't usual TV speak of... We open on a world of blah, blah, blah. It's like, in my life, when I was a kid, this is what I lived with. Splur, like a diary entry, basically. And then the final bit was, and I think it could be a TV show. And I sent it to a few producers. Immediately felt sick. And was like, I cannot believe I've revealed all of that. But very quickly, a couple of them got back in touch with me and was like, I really like it. Neris Evans was the one... I went with and it all just went boom 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 that she went to Shane Allen that he commissioned the script and so then I'm writing the script and in my head I was like I'm not going to tell my mum yet because if my prior experience to date is anything to go by this won't even get made mm-hmm. that's, been, yeah. that's been my sole experience at this point so don't even bother telling her but I should also say I'd only even pitched the the story at that point because my mum was still very much like she can't work like she, her bipolar is extremely severe she's very heavily sedated very heavily medicated but she hadn't had a full-scale breakdown that had led to being sectioned in like eight years at that point. So it felt like while she's still battling with it, we're on an even keel and now's maybe the time I can reflect. So go away about the script and then get a call. They've greenlit the pilot. It's going to be filmed and it's also going to air on TV, which pilots don't always. So at that point I was like, better tell my mum. Were you worried? Were you worried? Yeah, I was worried because it's it's not only my story, you know. Oh, it's no. exposing for her too. 
The next day, my phone rings. It's my mum, and I can always tell when she's manic. And she says down the phone, hiya, babe, I've had a breakdown. And she hung up the call and turned her phone off. Oh, God. And so the, we then go in, I go into this like mad panic from London of trying to track down where the hell she is, calling the usual hospitals that I know. The mental facility she was in when I was a kid had closed down, so she, I knew she couldn't be there. So I was like, so where is she? Couldn't get through to her boyfriend. My sister also couldn't find her. Eventually, she gets sectioned in this facility at Landock Hospital, and we were due to start filming in like a couple of months from then. Anyway, what then began that year was the worst year of her mental health. She was sectioned something like eight times in one year. Mm-hmm. And it was just this like rapid cycling. Meanwhile, we're trying to find a hospital to shoot in my skin at. Mm-hmm. And there's this one hospital in Wales that you normally used to be able to shoot TV shows in. They're about to close down. The only hospital available is the hospital my mum is currently sectioned in. Mm-hmm. So we shot those mental health scenes in the pilot. My mum was there when we oh shot those. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. In a different wing. Jesus Christ, Kaylee. Yeah. You couldn't write it, could you? Fucking hell. We were, we were on the other side. But, you know, what comes with bipolar is this kind of, like, often paranoia. Yeah. There's a grandiosity and there's a, like, people will think I'm on the news, the Queen wants to speak to me, I'm being followed by cameras. It's like the last thing my mother needs is to be, like, taken out for a walk and to see her daughter with a camera crew. Yeah. yeah, can you oh imagine? It's like the actual paranoia literally come yeah. to life. Yeah, it, it didn't go down that way, thank God. But all that to say, I didn't really get to have a sit-down conversation with her because she was in no mental state. So instead, I went to my sister and said, look, this is happening. Can you just read the script? If you think I shouldn't be doing it, I'll, I'll pull it all. Or if there's anything you want to change or whatever, just, you know, sorry to put this on you, but I need a second opinion. And so she went away and read it and then came back and said don't change a thing, you've got to do it. Wow. And then, because um, I know your mum visited the set, didn't she? I was there that day. Um, yeah, she was yeah. due to come on. And um, what's the conversation's been like since? Obviously, she's, well, she was well at that point coming on set, wasn't she? Well-ish, yeah. Well-ish, Med- yeah. Medicated, yeah. yeah. Um, she's so proud of the show that we def- we had to have some difficult conversations. Like I did an article, uh, interview with The Guardian and the headline was something like talking about the shame I had around my mother. Oh dear. I mean, I had said it, but it was in context, obviously. Yeah. But she um she read that and said, "Oh, I, I didn't know you were ashamed of me," sort of thing. And and so you know, but I'm glad we had those conversations now because it, it's brought some stuff up for me to be able to go to to describe the complicated feelings of the person you love most in the world, also also being the person that you want to hide. Yeah. Yeah, and has caused a lot, uh, not intentionally, but a lot of yeah, you know, complicated emotions and situations yeah I, I didn't want my friends to make fun or yeah whatever of course you don't when it's you're feeling protecting ev- yourself isn't when it? you're and feeling you're... everything as a teenager everything's for the first time it's hard enough as it is without all of that yeah. on top you know and your sexuality and it's just like complex mess Jeez, emotions yeah. yeah but she's so bloody proud now like she she came the new house that I've just bought like even that, you know, she got to the garden gate. She's so proud that I've been able to buy this house. And she got to the garden gate and we were, there's like 20 steps leading to the front door. And on step five, she just went, it's amazing, babe. I can't believe it. And I said, you've only, seen, you've only seen five steps. Got... <laughs> there are steps got... to the front door though. How amazing is that? That's not in itself. Yeah. And then she came in and obviously, as aforementioned, all the BAFTAs are lined up. And she just was like, she just went, you're doing really well, babe. Oh, that's so wonderful, Kate. And I know she's she's so so proud, but obviously there were some difficult conversations. Yeah, yeah. And you're back home now. How does that feel going back? God, I never thought I'd come back. Well, I'm not quite back. I'm an hour away from where I grew up, which I think is about right. Like, I love Wales, but I, Cardiff is haunted for me. I have to say, like mm-hmm. every street corner just feels like yeah, a triggering. ghost. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of my family have died, so that's hard. But to be here, it feels right, you know, and um. The first morning I woke up in this house, it would have been my nan's birthday. And my nan is so integral in my life. She's in, in my skin. And she yeah. just, I went for a walk along the coastal path. We're right on the beach. I can see the sea from my window. And I've got this big, beautiful house with this big, beautiful garden and this amazing partner. And I'm safe. I'm safe. And I, I went for a walk along the beach and I sort of sat down. I just burst into tears. Yeah. Like happy tears. I was just yeah. like, it's her birthday. And I'm here because of her. I wouldn't yeah. have this if I hadn't had my nan always as this guiding light. And just seeing that, like, 
back then that's what she dreamed of for me mm, she yeah. dreamed of this life and it's been it's become a reality I can't yeah. believe it I can't believe it I'm it's, pinching it's, myself it feels so simple to say safe doesn't it but you mm. just didn't oh, feel God. that at all you haven't ever felt that at all and it's yeah uh, yeah it's beautiful to hear I know things are going so brilliantly well for you and, you know, and financially, you know, those box office days are behind you and you've won BAFTAs and, you know, you must be in high demand. Well, I know you are. Um, do you still feel working class? Do you still feel connected to your roots? Do you think that will ever leave you? Never. Um, I'm middle class in my uh, expenditures, you know, like this, sure. the coffee that I like and the bread that I like yeah. and I've gotten accustomed to a certain way of life now. But the reason that I don't think it'll ever leave me and why my roots will always be there is you don't shake off the feeling of the bailiffs knocking the front door <laughs> when I was a kid and like yeah. hide behind the sofa, hide, and we'd all have to hide and pretend the lights were off or the electricity and the gas going off every few days. Or like I remember when I was like maybe six and I used to like be whinging to my mum being like, please can I have a lolly, please can I have a lolly, please can I have a lolly, please. And my mum would go, we can't afford it, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. And I remember this one day, she threw her purse at me and went, open it. And so I unzipped it and she said, what do you see? And I was like, nothing. And she was like, nothing is what we've got. Wow. So how do you think I'm going to buy you a lolly? And that moment of just being a little brat and sort of then going, oh, fuck. How old were you then? Six. Yeah. Six. And for me to go to like my mum... I had a, um, I got a stagecoach application form and I really wanted to go, but I didn't want to ask her because I was worried that, um, well, I knew we couldn't afford it. And so I hid it in my bedroom. And about six months later, she found it. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me? And I said, I just, I just knew you couldn't afford it. And she made it happen. She signed me up. Oh, God bless her. She found the money and I knew she couldn't afford it. And I knew there was a couple of times she had to go to the school and have conversations with the teachers. I, I knew she was saying, oh, we can't afford to pay this this term, but I will pay you back which I was obviously embarrassed about, but also like in hindsight, God, that she was doing that for me. Anyway, long-winded way of saying that don't go away. No. It doesn't matter how much money I've got now. Like when I buy toilet rolls now, <laughs> I buy 50 toilet rolls. Yeah. I, got, I bought a shed just to fill it with my spare toilet rolls, and my spare dish soap and my spare shower jugs. I'm like, I got my bits. And that's not just since the pandemic. It's just how you feel. No, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a <laughs> pandemic. It's a like having not had the bits, and now I've got the bits. Yeah, God, it's and it's such a good feeling. You deserve it, and you've worked so hard for it. I couldn't think of honestly someone who deserves it more. And it's so wonderful to see, and it's just so amazing when good things happen to good people. I mean, obviously, I could chat all day, and I've, I know your story, and uh, well, most of it anyway. Yeah. But uh, we just end the show each week asking our guest, because um, we've obviously celebrated your success. Um, is there a working class hero you'd like to celebrate today? Who would that be for you? Well, I was going to say my Auntie Linda, <laughs> who's my mum's older sister, who was the ex-wife of the man with the ice cream van. Big Brian. <laughs> Big Brian, who she yeah. was head girl of her school and she was really clever and she wound up getting knocked up when she was like 18. So she couldn't go to uni and she, she wound up having four kids. But she then went on to put herself through night school when her kids were like ranging from the age of sort of seven to 13 or something. She worked a day job, put herself through uni and she got a degree in sociology. Wow. And then she, she didn't wind up being able to do anything with it. I think for her, it was just get that achievement of mm. doing it. Mm. And I remember I, I got pulled out of school for the day when I was eight and I got to go to Linda's graduation. Oh, wow. It was so inspiring to me. But now she's she's just works at WH Smith, but she's bought loads of properties that she rents out. And she said cool. to me the other month, she was like, babe, I'm a millionaire on paper. <gasps> yes. On, she's Linda. done that for herself. Very sadly, she's got cancer at the moment. So she's struggling. I was going to say her, but the way this conversation has gone, her and my mum. It's, got, it's the pair of them. Of course. It's, it's the pair of them. They're a pair of working class heroes. And um, so just give us your, your mum's full name and Linda's full name. Janet Llewellyn and Linda Stereo. Well, we're celebrating them as well as you today, Kaylee Llewellyn. I love you endlessly. 
I actually feel like I'm just going to burst into tears. Did you want to wrap up? (laughs) No, just thank you so much. It's so brilliant. Such a, it's just a joy to see you doing so well. I just, as a fan, cannot wait to see what you write next. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work. I think it's just so fantastic and everything I love I think it's important and funny and full of heart and um, I can't wait to see what you write next well let's oh, hope you get you. an Emmy next because then you just get paid <gasps> for getting nominated right, right. so Jesus <laughs> if I get an Emmy drinks are on drinks me on you, mate. <laughs> oh yeah oh thanks <laughs> thank Hayley. you so much thank you it's been a pleasure Well, I had to, I mean, obviously I've known Kaylee for a long time and yeah, I mean, God, I had to have a right old word of myself then as I'm sobbing into my curtain here. (laughs) I know she's so, um, it's just the openness, I suppose that in a way, if you're going to write something that's so integral about your life, then I suppose you, you get used to speaking about it, but it's just so extraordinary how open she is and how, you can just see that in, in your skin. That's why it's such an extraordinary piece. If ever there was a better advertisement for write what you know, there it is. Because yeah. it's just such an amazing piece of, of TV. And that's why when I said at the beginning, and I really didn't mean it flippantly, that she really is, for me, the epitome of, of working class success. Like yeah, from coming from nothing. we're not even just coming from nothing is it it's like there's coming from nothing and we know that some of our guests have absolutely come from what people might say nothing but she doesn't just come from nothing she comes from like the most extraordinary childhood adversity through no one's fault you know just through a a set of like you know incredibly difficult circumstances and mental health issues Mm. but it is extraordinary not only to overcome that but to just triumph from it i just uh, yeah. i'm just a, the biggest fan of hers i think she's amazing yeah i feel very lucky to know her and of course you can catch in my skin i think it's still on bbc iplay if you haven't seen it please watch it it's an education as much uh, also, as anything it, and it's really bloody funny too yeah yeah <laughs> that's because of who Oh, what? No, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, um, you can join us next week for a brand new guest. Um, We're getting towards the end of our series soon. Anyway, we've still got a couple more left, so join us next week. And remember, guys, for gold's sake, keep it classy. The Proper Class podcast is produced by Michelle Far Scott for Rangabee Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. Just to let you know, folks, the Proper Class podcast is now going weekly. And whilst I've got you here, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, whoever will listen. We've also got an Instagram page. Ooh, get us. And you can follow all the news and goss at the Proper Class podcast. And if you haven't nodded off yet, we've also gone and got ourselves an official email. So do get in touch. The email is properclasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, keep it classy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.